0: I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Serial Box. Serial Box delivers addictive book content in short listen or read installments, designed to fit into today's fast-paced mobile lifestyle. Switch between listening and reading with a single click, picking up right where you left off. Learn more at serialbox.com. S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com. Anissa Gray is the author of debut novel, The Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls. Originally a print journalist at Reuters, Anissa moved to broadcast journalism and became a writer, editor, and producer at CNN, for which she received Emmy and DuPont awards. A graduate of Western Michigan University, she received her master's in English from NYU. Hi, Anissa. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Zibby? I'm good. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. Would you mind telling listeners what the care and feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls is about? Mm. It's about what happens to a family
1: after its matriarch and her husband are sent to prison after defrauding their town. Her two sisters are forced to return home to deal with the fallout and care for the couple's two troubled teenage daughters. I think what you see as the narrative unfolds is a family moving through the challenges of forgiveness in some imperfect, but I think ultimately hopeful ways.
0: Totally. It was so good.
1: Thank you so You're much.
0: welcome. You. Oh, sure. So this is your debut novel after a career that you've spent in print and broadcast journalism. What made you turn to fiction writing at this stage in your career, and why did you start with this particular story, this book?
1: What made me change? I've I've wanted to be a novelist ever since I was a kid. So growing up, I was a big reader, but I also enjoyed writing stories just for myself. But when I went away to college and graduated with student loan debt and all other associated costs of life, I realized that I needed a paying job. So I went in the direction of journalism, which I loved. But I reached a point in my career a few years ago when I started to feel a little Mm -hmm. bit burned out. And that's when I revisited that, you know, sort of childhood and adolescent dream of being a writer.
0: And how did you end up picking this title?
1: Mm, The Care and Feeding of Revenously Hungry Girls? Yes. This title was born with my initial idea for this book. So when I sat down to write this book, what you have in your hands now or what you've read, that's not the book I intended to write. The book I intended to write was about the character Viola. And her life dealing with an eating disorder and the aftermath of that. So the title attached quite well to that. But the story just wasn't coming together. I was just sort of flat on the page. So what I did was took a step back and started to view her through the lens of family. And when I did that, it just, it became a much broader and richer story. But the title still stuck because one of the things you learn in treatment for an eating disorder is that it is not about the food It's about those hollow places, and you see that in the other siblings as well.
0: I think that the way you wrote about Viola's eating disorder was one of the best ways I've seen eating disorders written about in fiction, to be honest. I mean, mm. I see why you <laughs> were going to make it a whole book. I mean, like Viola was for sure, you know, I, you kept alternating characters and I kept waiting to get back to hers. Not that the others were, were not also just as strong, but there was something about Viola that I was really drawn to. Mm, okay. One of the things in a binge eating episode that Viola goes through, which was followed by Violent Purging, you wrote about sort of that fuzzy white, noise, that state of calm that Viola achieves. And you wrote, that calm I felt, that fuzzy white noise, this is afterwards, it's leaving too. And here arrives what always comes next, this need, nothing short of crotch grabbing desire, spreading up and seizing my brain until I can think of nothing else. The zombie stirs. And then later you write, the zombie walks. There's no taking this dead-eyed monster down with a good headshot, a good blast of rational thought. I'm alive with it, pulsing with adrenaline, desire and dread. I reach for the Oreos. That was amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like, it, it, it's so alive. It's like you're right there with her the whole time. So tell me a little bit about how you were able to capture these feelings about sort of her state of mind.
1: Well, just sort of to start with, you know, I've experienced that. It's a world that I'm, you know, unfortunately quite familiar with. But for me as the writer, the question was, how much do you put on the page? How much detail do you go into? And Mm -hmm. I, I won't, you know, I don't want to do a spoiler for readers, but the whole scene that you're referring to is pretty, you know, detailed, to say the least. So for me, it was just making a decision to take what I know and to show it in the fullest possible way that I was capable of.
0: Well, I'm really grateful that you shared it because I know so many people go through the same thing and often feeling alone is one of the you know, consequences of that and being able to read about someone else's struggle is is so helpful. So I'm I'm really glad you put it down there. <laughs> Even as fiction.
1: Thank you. Eating disorders are yeah, like most things very private disorders, but more common than you know, most people are than most people know.
0: I did my senior thesis in psychology about eating disorders, just FYI. So, <laughs> okay, so you you know you know what I'm saying. I know what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> So Viola has this relapse which you know you introduced very early, so hopefully it's not a spoiler, but it was very early in the book. But you also have her as a therapist to girls with eating disorders. So I was just wondering how you feel her own experience, sort of as she continues to go through it, affects her role as as a helper to others who are still struggling.
1: Well, there's a point in the book where she talks about how important the job is to her. She's a therapist in an eating disorders clinic, but she is in full relapse at that point. And she knows that she cannot really be effective in her job because she's not being honest. Mm-hmm. So that's problematic there. But towards the end of the book, and and I'm trying <laughs> trying to answer in a way that I don't give anything away, So toward the end of the book, we don't know if she's going to go back or not. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm not entirely sure if she feels like she's able to be useful at least at that point in her life and in her efforts to recover after relapse.
0: I feel like having a therapist who sort of knows what you're going through, it's like if you see someone about parenting and they have kids, mm-hmm. it, I don't know. I think mm-hmm. it doesn't have to, but I think it can help. <laughs> I don't know. No, I, I think you're right. I mean, that's one of the reasons
1: group therapy is so effective, at least it was for me and my in my treatment experience, because you're sitting in a room And you're describing something that not a lot of people understand. And you don't have to give any backstory. You don't have to explain yourself. Mm -hmm. You can just talk and people understand you.
0: So I feel like there's so many mixed things about treatment for all sorts of, you know, mental illnesses and disorders, and I thought the scene that you created at the Burger King when Viola's having, you know, flashing back to this meal she had with her dad and is trying to open up to him, and he says to her, Don't be acting no fool up there with your teachers. Ain't no such thing as depressed. You just make it your business to get something in your head. You hear me? And I felt like that was so just, I don't know, representative of the many people who feel like, okay, you're depressed, just snap out of it. Yeah. But of course, that's not what it, depression is about at all. And it just sort of can make the person feel worse. Yeah. So I really, I liked how you did that. What do you think people should do who are depressed but have to you know, encounter loved ones who thinks that it's all just a matter of making up your mind not to be that way?
1: Mm, I, I think the best a person can do is to go and get uh, good uh, trusted, competent help for themselves. Because it's just true that a lot of people don't understand that depression is a real disorder. It, it's a real thing. It's not, you know, putting on. It's not, it, it goes beyond being sad.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: a lot of people don't understand that.
0: So to talk a little about Althea and Proctor as sort of the main couple who in the very beginning end up, you know, you see them as transgressing and committing this crime. When Proctor sends lyrics to Althea through the mail, he says, you and I are charged with this to hold the essence of a kiss, to take these broken plans and make them rhyme. So I'm wondering, do you think Althea was able to do that successfully at all? One of the things I think about
1: the book, and sort of broadly speaking, is that you don't really get a neat tie-up at the end mm-hmm. for these characters, but I think you get enough at the end to see that it is possible, that their trajectory has changed in a way that they may be moving in a different direction, a much more positive direction. And I think that's true at the end with Althea. Now, can I say for sure, I'd love to hear what readers think, but in my mind as the writer, I feel that at the end of the book, Althea is set up to pursue a different course, a much more positive one. Yeah,
0: I agree. I agree with you. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: No problem. <laughs> so you spent a bunch of time in the book with Althea in a prayer group in in prison, and you developed this character, Mercedes, along with her. And I was wondering what you think the role of religion is here or in the book, what you were trying to to say about it, if anything.
1: Well, I think a lot of that is just sort of, I am the daughter of a preacher. Mm. I don't follow the faith that I was raised with, but I still understand it, and I see how transformative It has been for people I've known. So I think some of that is sort of transferred here into the book, sort of my understanding of religion and what I've seen it and how I've seen it sort of help people who are in difficult periods. So in this book, I think there's sort of a broad look at faith. Althea is not really a person of faith, and she, you know, makes her way, and she finds her comfort in her way. In the case of Mercedes, she is a a person of faith, And it means a lot for her, and it is helping her through a very difficult time. So I I see it as sort of one of the many ways where sort of the care part of care and feeding comes into play.
0: Hmm. So just broadly, did you enjoy writing this novel? Like, what was it like for you after wanting to do it for so long and then just deciding to do it? Was it fun?
1: Uh, <laughs> it you it, it had its moments uh there you know during the it took about three years and over the course of that time you know there were starts and stops, the big one being you know. Starting off with a completely different book and six months in, like, "Eh, it's not that book and throwing all that away. That wasn't fun.
0: No, Uh, (laughs) that doesn't sound like
1: fun. (laughs) No, it wasn't. But, But sort of finding your way and watching these characters sort of come alive on the page, that part of writing is absolutely priceless.
0: Your characters were particularly alive to me. I mean, I know I read like tons and tons of books, but for some reason, when I would put the book down and go about my life and do something else, I kept being like, "Oh, I wonder like what Proctor's up to today in jail." Like, I kept thinking of. They <laughs> felt so real to me. It was. It's like almost a little creepy. I I don't know. Now I need. Now I need like a continuing story of them or something.
1: I don't know. No, that's good. That's good to hear. Then they're doing exactly what they're yeah. supposed
0: to do. I'm like, what's up with Kim? What's going on? Anyway. <laughs> So when and where did you write this book? Like, are you a go-to-the-library type of person? I know you, I saw a video where you were sort of extolling the the values of libraries, but is that where you like to write, or do you write at home?
1: I write mostly at home. Writing this book, it was sort of a a journey woman's adventure. I started out writing in a spare room we have on a, those TV tables, Mm -hmm, kind of up there. So I started there, and then we decided to renovate that room. So I was cast out to the library where I worked um, a good deal of the time. And and then I would sometimes work at the kitchen table. And eventually I, you know, went and worked in the renovated spare room. So for me, I'm able to work generally anywhere. And I think a lot of that comes from sort of the discipline of being, having been a journalist Mm
0: -hmm. for,
1: you know, much of my professional career. You have a deadline, so do it and do it where you can.
0: As you went along, would you show people? Like, who, who told you you had to switch gears? I came to see that. Okay. Um I went
1: to one to one workshop and I got sort of tepid reaction but it it sort of reinforced what I already knew.
0: Okay. Would you do it again? This whole novel writing business? Yes, in fact, I am doing it again. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm in the process
1: of doing it, doing it again, yeah.
0: What is your next book about, can you say? Uh,
1: just sort of generally, so as not to jinx myself, but okay. it is also a family, a family story, a much smaller family, but it's sort of what happens in the aftermath of the disappearance of the father.
0: Oh, It's so funny. I feel like a lot of authors, it's, a, it's like they don't want to talk about the next book because of jinxing themselves, like you just said, it's like no, it's like the whole thing is almost like luck. Do you know? Like I feel like, like it's it's, it's coming it's out of you. Completely
1: irrational. No, it's no, it's completely, completely just, irrational. But. but
0: you're you're not alone in that. It's like everybody feels that way. I, everybody's like, well, I, I can't tell you what this is about, or I don't know if I say too much, it won't come true. As if it's you
1: know. you know, we writers sort of pin a lot of our hopes on you know wings, prayers, and you know the ability to get down some stray thought we had you know six months ago.
0: <laughs> so funny I saw a video on, on I think the Penguin website you told writers to they'd asked you for advice to young writers and you said that you should write a lot but expect it to be terrible basically <laughs> like expect which I, I kind of well, laughed I'll, I laughed out loud at that I was like yeah tell it like it is Like sub, you said expect subpar writing it's like alright well here I go writing this terrible <laughs> stuff
1: well, yeah, you know, sadly, it's true, and that's you know that's even even now. As I said, I write to a schedule. I don't wait for inspiration. So you know, mm-hmm. I sort of find it on the page. But sometimes it's a journey to finding get on the page, and you're writing a lot of bad stuff to get to the good stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess that's just part of the process. Yeah. I mean, does anybody just sit down and write in a genius way? Everything is like a final draft. I, I think just part of the process is writing and rewriting.
1: Yeah. Writing is rewriting and they say that, you know, for a reason. It's not just a cliche.
0: And you are a huge fan of reading and the importance of reading as I am as well, which is great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like why I do this. <laughs> well, have you read anything good lately? Or do you have any books you would recommend or that influenced you a lot? One of the books I
1: just finished reading was Manhattan Beach by mm. Jennifer. Egan. And Mm -hmm. I would recommend that book wholeheartedly. And as a companion to that, I would recommend her book before that, Visit from the Goon Squad. They are two completely different books that show just the incredible range of one writer. So if you're sort of interested in A, a good story, you'll find that in both of those books. And B, watching a master at work, read those two books.
0: I read Manhattan Beach, but I did not read visit from the goon squad but it's here i have it so <laughs> yeah,
1: it's a completely it's a completely different book it's it's something
0: and why do you think reading is so important sell sell busy moms on on why it's worth it to spend the time reading <laughs> well
1: w- w- you know one of the things i say about reading is that it allows you to inhabit a different world which is which is fun for you as the reader but one of the benefits of that is that it helps you connect with people and experiences that aren't your own. And through that, we build empathy. I think we we are more inclined to listen to and care for one another more when we're, you know, interested and we're respecting the fact that not everyone is like us and and they may be different for some specific reasons. So I I think it just sort of makes society better to have, have it peopled with people who read a lot.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I really appreciate your candid answers and all the time (laughs) you spent. (laughs) Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by Serialbox. S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X dot com. Serialbox dot com. .com. Delivering addictive book content in short listen or read installments. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.